question for you. Rhetorical though it may be, a question nonetheless. When you wanted to do something or you wanted something or you wanted to go someplace or you wanted to, and the answer from your parents, no, 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 no. And you played the card, tried to play the card. But everyone is doing it. Everyone is going. Everybody's going to get one. You ever tried that one? Okay, everybody above those ages. Let me ask you a question. How far did it get you? I don't know about your parents, but yeah, that that was not going to fly at all. We're in 1 Samuel. We are in chapter 7. Moving quickly to chapter 8. And as chapter 7 comes to a close, the author gives us a passing little detail about Samuel judging Israel, not just from the place of his home, let's say his hometown of Ramah, but from three different locations as well. Before we move to the next pericope, which leads us into what is going to be a lasting political change for God's people, I want to highlight a foreboding piece of narrative. The narrative, of course, is inspired by God. We know that according to our doctrine of inspiration. All scripture is inspired by God. It's God-breathed. It's exactly what he wanted, nothing more, nothing less. And this little piece of narrative, narrative immediately precedes what is coming concerning this monumental political change, and it's huge. 1 Samuel 7, verse 13. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more within the border of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron even to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. Underscore this in your minds. So there was peace between Israel And the Amorites. Seems to fit. Seems like a pretty good summation of all that's taken place now. There's peace in the land. All the things that were taken that shouldn't have been taken were returned. And life is good. But there is an irony to life on this planet. Not just for them, but for us still today. Nearly everybody, and I'm talking about with a faith system or tradition or without a faith system or tradition, nearly everyone longs for some notion of heaven or a heavenly concept. And it could be, in fact, what we think about as far as life in the great beyond, or for some it may just be, no, we go out of existence, you know, we just cease to exist once we die. But my view of heaven or whatever is life on a planet that is free of pollution or war and poverty and disease. And for the vast majority of the world, the intensity of that longing for that concept of of the ideal, whatever they call it, it's frustrated by all kinds of intrusions 
into those sparse seasons of our lives when life is going pretty well on all accounts. So why is that ironic? Well, the irony is that the moment or the moments that it seems like we have attained what is pretty heavenly is the very moment or moments when we become rather casual about how good we have it. And the duration of that time of relative ease seems to be, in, at some degree anyway, directly proportional to our growing in dissatisfaction with it. Another way of saying that is the more we have and the longer we have it, the less we seem to be satisfied by it. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he wrote, The meaning of earthly existence lies not as we have grown used to thinking in prospering, but in the development of the soul. When God put the Imago Dei within every human being, it is that which distinguished and distinguishes us from the entire rest of the creative order. And in that Imago Dei that he has placed within us, he also placed at the same time, if you want to think of it that way, this God-shaped void that only he can fill. On top of that, it is the God who has also set eternity in man's heart, according to Solomon, as he writes in Ecclesiastes, which means as everyone is born... Everybody, and no exceptions to this, everybody who is born is put on a path of the pursuit of eternity. And that path of pursuit of eternity has a thousand and more branches leading here, there, and everywhere. And as we are traversing the smooth and the rough of life's course, the Lord places road signs. The Lord places warning signs. The Lord places construction signs and regulatory signs. And he places bridge out signs. And he places even billboards as ads. Trying all to get us to get onto the path that he has determined for us. And those paths that he has put us on are for his purposes and for his glory. This is the bottom line of why everybody is ever created in the first place. Solomon sums it up in the book of Ecclesiastes, the very last chapter. The second to last verse, I believe, Ecclesiastes 12:13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. The whole matter he's talking about is what Ecclesiastes is about, and that is that life apart from God is absolute futility. And so he says that the conclusion to all of this is fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That's a great summary to why we exist. People who wring their hands about, I, I just don't know what my purpose in life is. What's, what is man's purpose in life in general? What is, there it is in a sentence. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And success and contentment and peace 
are found largely to the degree that we take those turns and those detours and those routes which have been directed to take by the Lord, paying attention to the bridge out signs and all the warning signs in our life pursuits. Now that may seem a bit simplistic, and it is, but it is true. But when Eve saw the fruit in the garden, the devil convinced her that since it was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and she ate, and she gave to her husband also with her, and he ate. And mankind has been derailed ever since, being enticed by the allure of bounty and beauty and wanting more and more. There was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Sounds great on the surface, and it is. But peace and abundance lead to be, tend to be a detriment to spiritual growth and to spiritual maturity. We tend to think that setbacks and heartbreaks and, and disappointments and injustices are those things which mitigate against our spiritual growth and our maturity because that's usually the result that it has more often than not in our lives. But in fact, peace and abundance are a much greater detriment to spiritual growth and maturity than are the challenges of life. Some of the healthiest churches in the world are those in places where you very literally risk your freedom or and your job and or your life for even owning a Bible. Verse 15. Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he used to go annually on circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all three places. And then his return was to Ramah, for his house was there, and there he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. The immediate threat of war with the Philistines was gone. And the safe, daily, and even godly routines were resumed. And thus starts the transition into chapter 8 to... We need a king. Chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Aviah. And they were judging in Beersheba. And his sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice <laughs> that has a familiar ring to it what the heck is it with skilled and talented and effective high-profile leaders and their wretched children now that's a generalization but you look over the sweep of history in all sectors. And I mean, even today, look at, at the people who are very famous and popular, or just CEOs of organizations that are crazy, crazy effective and successful and billionaires, if not. 
Remember at the beginning of our study in Samuel that Eli was the man of the hour? And if you remember, Eli's sons, according to chapter 2, were worthless men. That doesn't quite do it justice. But it's adequate. There are many reasons for wayward children, not the least being that we are all born with a sin nature. (laughs) Duh. And if that sin nature, though, is not quelled in childhood by appropriate, loving discipline. Those things are are directed at the heart and the will of the child. Accompanied, though, by God-inspired instruction, those things are designed or targeted at the mind, instilling godly boundaries of good and evil, with a demonstration of godly living by mom and dad, as Solomon notes in Proverbs 22:15, that you are likely to raise up an unpleasant child. Biblical parenting in the ideal demands a female mother. It is pathetic that I even have to underscore that in our culture. A female mother and a male father And the rearing of the child is the responsibility of both parents. But the ultimate responsibility falls on the father. That is simply the way God designed it. Yesterday, one of the segments at the conference was a man talking about good leadership of your children. There was nothing new there for me. Hopefully there were some new things for some others. And as I sat there, of course, my sermon was all done and everything else. And I thought, well, this is nice. It's always nice to hear reinforcement of the same things. It's just the way God designed it. You can see it played out in scriptures truly from about beginning to end. But if you are (laughs) demanding a cherry-picked verse, a pretty good one by itself standing All by itself is Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. I'll leave that to you. But it clearly places the leadership in the home for the spiritual development of the children on the Father. Leaders of note, people who are successful in the world's eyes, often have more demands on their time precisely because they are successful. And so that demand on their times takes them out of the home, perhaps more than somebody else. And the nature of the beast is to merely then contain that sin nature of the little ones. Because you're not there to take care of things. Oh, you can delegate to mom, and that's certainly appropriate. But at the end of the day, the responsibility, the initiative, the leadership is on the man. And so they just try to contain that sin nature for the few years that they are in the home rather than dutifully, participatingly, leaderingly nurturing and rearing those children. 
And too many parents, please hear this, if this is applicable, too many parents, from a lot of my own personal observation, over many, many years, even decades, is they convince themselves that whatever age we are talking about that their children might be in is just a phase. And somehow they are going to magically and mysteriously evolve out of that phase into wonderful, balanced, productive, fine, upstanding citizens. Tends not to work that way. Eli and Samuel, David and Solomon. I mean, if you go through the the leadership of Israel and you look at their families, for the most parts, there were some good exceptions, but for the most parts, they were a mess. Eli was not only a permissive father, he was a participant in the evil and the wickedness of his two sons. Great role model he was. And now remember that Samuel was delivered to the temple to reside there to where now Eli is his surrogate father. Great role model that Samuel had. On top of which Samuel were told now as he's older and he's the judge of Israel, he was not stationary, meaning he wasn't there in his own home town all the time. He had responsibilities outside of Ramah. Hence the mention of those three other cities being the judge of the nation's spiritual, civic, and military head. So the leaders of Israel get together and they hold a meeting. Verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you've grown old. Thank you. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. Everybody else has one. We want one too. But this thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Didn't God's people already have a king? I mean, the king of kings? Oh, but they wanted what everybody else has. And their comments are not exactly flattering to Samuel, but they were laced with truth. Samuel was old. And I'm sure that his appearance wasn't very kingly. If Samuel would go into battle, which I'm assuming he didn't, but if he did, he's not the kind of, of stature of a man, of a leader, of a king that would put fear into the enemies. We want a king like everybody else. He was no William Wallace. That's right. And if he were here, he'd destroy the Philistines with fireballs from his eyes and bolts of lightning from elsewhere. 
and Samuel's sons were corrupt. But Samuel's reaction here is impressive. He could have taken it personally, and perhaps he did. But maybe that's why he prayed before he did anything out of anger. And the Lord hears Samuel's prayer. At least two different times in the past messages, I've highlighted the unpleasant reality that sometimes the worst thing that God can do for anyone is to give them what they want. And here we are. Verse 7. The Lord says to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. Uh, Not good. For they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day I have brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. The principle is one that we should note well as a means of encouragement. I'm aware of a lot of the challenges of our children and our young adults, which they have faced and, in fact, are facing in that hallowed arena and protected institutions of education called grammar school, middle school, high school, and college. The Lord's answer to Samuel is the same as Jesus answers to all who follow him still today. In John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18, Jesus says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you? A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Now, on the one hand, that's not very encouraging because it doesn't promise relief does it it doesn't promise supernatural protection god doesn't say that hey don't worry man i got this i got your back when this happens watch i'll strike them all mute so that they can't speak and you think okay now this is the good news well it it is Because it is affirming that you are his. When people can't stand you, not because you're an idiot, but because of your ideology, because of your convictions, because of your taking a stance for righteousness... That's because you have that mark, that indelible impress of God Almighty upon you. 
And they who do not have that impress will hate you because your very existence is convicting. Remember, God has set eternity in everybody's heart. No matter how deep they bury it, it is there. And so your very presence is loathsome to them because they are reminded and unsettled that they are not on the right side of things. So yeah, it's affirming that you are his. And so, as Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who are negligent in their duty to protect you. And I'm talking about school officials. And that they would protect you as much as they protect others. And when they don't, because we are still, albeit in a quasi-fashion, we are still a nation and a society and a culture of laws and rules and regulations. And if our schools are going to clamp down on bullying of all that, I hate that word. What an obnoxious, stupid word. Because it's so abused. But you understand what it means, I suppose. And they clamp down on bullying when anybody dare to ever so modestly, politely, quietly, or appropriately take exception to perversion and wickedness and evil. You're fair game. And this is a present reality today, right here, right now. I am hoping to meet with a young lady from our church today after service, about this very thing. There is nothing ungodly about holding our officials of every stripe to the rule of law. And it annoys me to distraction. <laughs> when Christians say, oh, well, you know, Jesus said we're going to be persecuted. Yeah, he did. And he also said that we are a nation of laws because we are ruled by a government insofar as they stand for the character and the heart and the matters of God. And we still do in many places. We're getting further and further and further away from that, but we still do. And so it is our civic duty and our Christian responsibility to hold those people to the account of the laws and the rules and the regulations that they play by on Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday, but not on Wednesday and Friday if it's where you're concerned. Are you following me? Maybe not. Kids... I'm going to say to you that if your parents will not speak up for you in these situations at school in particular, let Pastor Gary know, and he will let me know. The Lord says, Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. The fact that they wanted a king 
was, I don't know how else to say this, this isn't completely accurate, but you'll see what I mean, I think. The fact that they wanted a king at all was not really the big crime. Eh, I'd have to put an asterisk by that. And I say that because of what we find in Deuteronomy chapter 17. The Lord is anticipating this very day in Samuel. And we're talking about 400 years prior to the event. And he gave explicit instruction in this matter. Let's look at it in Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 14. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me four centuries before this, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen, you shall set a king you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. There was good reason for that, and it has to do with fidelity to Jehovah. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself. Huh? Hang on. Nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes so that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. God says, look, if you're going to have an earthly king, here's what he should look like, and what he should be, and what he should do. I don't want him gathering horses unto himself. Why not? In other words, look, I'm not interested in him coming in with this, this ego and this power that I'm now going to become the conqueror and ruler of the world. And so I'm going to bulk up and beef up my military so that we can go and destroy everybody because my ego is so big that I want it all. Now you listen to this as I just, as, I mean, I'm just re-saying what's here. And think about our, the majority of our political leaders today at the highest levels. I don't want anybody who's going to be accumulating gold and silver unto himself. Huh. In other words, I want somebody who is there as a king who is going to serve, truly serve the people. Not who is there because of the power and the prestige and will use it to their advantage and to feather their nest. And to help him do that, he's going to have his own personal copy of the word. And he will read it and spend time in it and with me every day. And if he doesn't turn to the left, which 
means to veer off this way and to do his own thing and to go to the right and do his own thing, but he stays right on my heels, then he will be a good king for a long time to come and his sons after him. A king as such as the people envisioned, though, here in 1 Samuel, was not God's ideal will. In theology, it's called God's decretive will, that which he decrees. In other words, God's ideal will, and then there's his permissive will, that which he permits. What we are reading in 1 Samuel is not his ideal will, but it was within his permissive will. And so, as the Lord often does with humanity, he knows our weaknesses, he knows our belligerent spirits and so establishes boundaries for us to mitigate the awful impact of sin which we tend to pursue with abandon. And what came immediately to mind, you know, last week, it's, it's kind of funny to me, not coincidental, I don't believe, that I talked about the song, Come Thou Fount of many blessings and we talked about the Ebenezer and here I raise mine Ebenezer hither by thy help I've come the third verse is prone to wander Lord I feel it prone to leave the God I love isn't that your life story that's my life story it blows me away here's my heart God take and seal it seal it in by courts above. And indeed he has. Because of our blessed Savior. God's people want to be like everybody else. Boy, I'm sure glad that we are not like that. <laughs> Bless you. The Lord speaks in verse 9. Now then, listen to their voice, Samuel. Ooh. Remember again, this is where the eerie cello sound comes in. Give them what they want, Samuel. (laughs) However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. I got an email this week from... Sam Huggard, who is the district superintendent of New England, meaning he's the district superintendent over our church. And this is what he wrote. Oswald Sanders wrote, Oswald Sanders is a dearly beloved beloved, uh, saint, departed author, theologian, writer. A leader is a person who has learned to obey a discipline imposed from without and is then taken on a more rigorous discipline from within. Many who drop out of ministry are sufficiently gifted, but have large areas of life floating free from the Holy Spirit's control. End quote from Oswald Sanders. Now, Sam uh, continues. He said, I saw an example of the power of discipline while watching a documentary on Tom Brady this week. Yes, the greatest quarterback of all time who is preparing to beat the Eagles in the Super Bowl, but I digress. This documentary begins with Tom asking the question, what are you willing to give up to be the best that you can be? You only have so much energy and the clock is ticking. If you are going to compete against me, you better be willing to give up your life because I'm giving up mine. 
end quote. Sam continues, love him or hate him, there is no questioning that his discipline has propelled him far beyond his natural ability. As I watched, I thought, if Tom is willing to be that disciplined to be the leader of a football team, how much more should I be disciplined as a leader in the kingdom of God? I have thought that of different, I guess, illustrative uh, examples in the past. I think the first time that I was really conscious of that was I was watching the Olympics, and this would have been many, many years ago. And it was one, they were doing one of those backstories about this particular athlete, and, you know, they started at age three, you know, in the figure skating or whatever it happened to be. And here's what the parents did. The parents physically, uh, when they were like 10 years old, physically moved out of state to another state to be closer to an Olympic facility because they saw the potential and everything else. And it's this life of sacrifice by, yes, the athlete, but also the parents to become the best of the best of the best. And I thought, man, to have the gumption and the passion to give up all that other stuff to become the best of the best of the best for something that's what? At the, at the apex, at the pinnacle of it, you stand on a podium, you get to see your flag go up, and you get this medal, this gold medal, if you're the best of the best of the best. And then what? And then what? Then you get your picture on a box of cereal. Remember those days? And then you become a coach a lot of times. And yeah, you're a millionaire by that point with endorsements and everything else. But I think, and we, the church of Christ, are entrusted with the riches of eternity. And it's a major sacrifice to get up and come to Sunday worship with any kind of consistency. And that's the baby step part of our lives as Christians. I believe God is giving wake-up calls to His true church in this time of reprieve. And as time goes on, I am more and more convinced that that is exactly what has transpired, even supernaturally. That's just my opinion. And honest to God, what I fear the most is that the vast majority of those who wear Christ's name have not only stepped up their game now because of this reprieve, but what happens in times of ease and abundance? We become dissatisfied with that and we want more and more. And instead of becoming more rabid followers of Christ, we're becoming even lazier still. 
I don't envy my role in being a preacher. <laughs> and I tell you again, I set out for my messages saying, positive, positive, positive. Be uplifting, be encouraging, meaning fluffy and feel good and oh, it's so nice and everything. God loves you and all of that's true and it's necessary. No matter what I do, it comes out like this. And I, I, I said this week, okay, you just need to embrace it. But I'm like, no, if I embrace it, it'll be even worse. So please know this, and this is with all sincerity. I am not the least bit pleased with who I am today as a Christ follower. And probably the reason that I do tend to get a little passionate about these things is because I am the kind of person who, whether I'm doing sheer, sheer physical, uh, uh, in a physical endeavor or I'm on my cycle in front, and I'm trying to get better and stronger and all that stuff, I am hard on myself. You ask Barb what she hears coming out of the exercise room when I'm up there. I am getting down to the last three miles or so of a 20-mile ride with mountains and everything, and I am dying on that bike. And I'm coming in there, and I want to quit so bad, and I am yelling at myself, you do not quit. You keep pushing, and you go forward. Ah! I'm serious. I sit there, and I go, man, you are a madman. <laughs> God love you. So, we are not, ugh, we are not saved by our yelling at ourselves or by feeling guilty and bad and everything else. We are not even saved when we get our act together and we start actually growing and doing things committed to Him. We're not saved by any of that. We've already been secured in heaven because of Christ's righteousness. But why doesn't that motivate me more to be more sacrificial and more energetic for Him? I don't know. I call it the mystery of iniquity. The devil made me do it, honey. Remember Flip Wilson? Yeah, no, we can't blame the devil. I'm almost up to my target heart rate, I think. <laughs> Let me have you stand. If you came in here today unsaved and you're considering Christ, there's probably no way in the world that you want any part of him now. I realize that, but I also have a deep faith in God that conversion is always supernatural and it is always up to him and always by his grace. Thank you, Jesus, for that. And he is worth every bit of it and more. Father in heaven, why, why in heaven's name you ever put the call upon me, Lord? 
are so many others who live it better, do it better, preach it better, teach it better. But here I am, and I just pray, oh God, you would help me, first and foremost, to be a better example. And wake up, Lord, faith, evangelical free church. And somehow, again, oh God, those who need to hear these messages the most aren't here to hear them. I don't know, Lord, how to pray for them. But you do. And I just thank you that at the end of it all, it is with your spotless, heavenly, holy robes of righteousness that I in all my sin am cloaked and covered as are all who believe in you and our names are written in the Lamb's book of life with permanent marker. Thank you for that, O oh God. Have mercy on us. In Jesus' name, amen.